All right. Thanks, guys. Hey, it's good to be with you. Um, we are continuing our Redefined series. If you've been around the past few weeks, I have thoroughly enjoyed it. This is a, a series where we look at the most famous, famous sermon of all time. It's, it's a sermon that Jesus gave called the Sermon on the Mount. And basically what he did is he redefined uh, how people see everything. He redefined the way that people see success. He redefined the way that people see themselves, the way they see their relationship with God. He basically said, you know, this is your definition of morality, but let me, let me redefine that for you. Um, and it's, 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 it's amazing how a sermon that was given 2,000 years ago is still so relevant today. I look at sermons that I gave 10 years ago, and I think, <laughs> but I guess that's why he's Jesus and I'm JT. Um, but it is, it's so relevant. And, and, and today we're going to be looking at a, a part of the Sermon on the Mount where he refers to his disciples, his followers as salt and light. And we're going to be looking at what that's not and what it is. Uh, but before we do, let me just say right off the bat that as I was studying it this week and looking at it, um, I felt super, super convicted. As I was looking at the meaning of salt and light, I began to get really challenged by God, and I don't like that. It's uncomfortable. But let me just say, being challenged by God and, and convicted by God is a really, really good thing. I remember one time someone said to me that if when you read the Bible and in your relationship with God, if you never feel like it challenges what you believe, if it never kind of confronts the way you behave and, and what you think, then it's, there's a good chance you're, you're, you're not really paying attention or that you're not really listening. See, I think if Jesus always agrees with you, or if the Bible just reinforces uh, everything that you're doing and it never makes you squirm a little bit, then, then I think it's, it's really important that you evaluate, God, are you the boss or am I the boss? Like, who's really on the throne in this relationship? Did I, did I maybe kind of create you in my image? So, like I said, this really challenged me. And, 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 and I say this uh, because I believe it's going to challenge some of you. And, and actually, I hope it does. My prayer is that it challenges some of you. And because I don't want to suffer alone. I want you to join me in my misery. No, the, the reason I hope it challenges you is because I believe that if, if, if we have a God who is a good father, then a good father disciplines the ones that he loves, right? A good father disciplines the ones that they love. If I never disciplined or corrected my daughter, Olive... If I never said, sweetheart, we don't play, we don't roughhouse around the, the stove. Or honey, we don't just cross the street without looking both ways. Or, or we don't hit our friends. Or, or on and on. If I didn't say things like that, 
I would not only not be doing my job as a father, but I'd be a really bad father. And so to be a, a good parent, we, we, we challenge, we correct the ones that we are to care for. And, and, and thankfully, we have a really good dad in heaven who's faithful to challenge us. And so I did. I felt challenged um, looking at this. And it's in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. And so uh, if you need a Bible, before, before we jump in, we have them on the stage and on the sound booth, uh, but we'll also have it on the, the screens as well. But let me just pray, and, and then we'll start looking at the text. Uh, Jesus, we thank you for who you are. And, and Holy Spirit, we, just, we, we say that we know that your word tells us that you both comfort and that you convict. And so we ask that you would come and, and do both of those things this morning. That you would comfort us and convict us the way that only you can. We ask that in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, so before we jump in, and start looking at the text, I want to give a little bit of context of what we've been talking about. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uh, just got done talking about the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are basically a, fa a fancy Latin word that means blessed. He says, this is what it means to be blessed. This is what it means to have a blessed life. And he gives this list of things that in human terms don't feel like a blessing at all. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek, who are peacemakers. All these things that were like, you forgot you know, who has the most power and who has, you know, the most authority and who has the most money and the most Instagram followers and all that. But he, he says all of these things that we wouldn't, we wouldn't normally consider blessed. And it's important to, to ask the question, who is Jesus speaking to? Who is Jesus speaking to? Because oftentimes we read stuff like this and we just think that there are these universal principles that apply to everybody, but I don't believe this is. I think this is something that Jesus was speaking to specific people. If we start in verse one on the Sermon on the Mount, it says, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. And his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. This was a word, this was a message specifically for the disciples. And I, and I believe that's extremely important because first of all, we, we know that this is a message for people who are his followers. It's not for uh, the entire world. It's oftentimes people interpret the Sermon on the Mount that they're these universal principles for the world, but it's not. It's for followers of Jesus. And so we keep that in mind as we read it. The second thing that's important is that I think Jesus makes a distinction even from his followers. And he says there's a difference between the crowd and disciples. Jesus makes a, a distinction between the crowd and his disciples. And actually, Jesus does this regularly throughout his life. Um, and, and, and the difference between the crowd and the disciple is... is, is, is a very significant but very small difference. See, uh, the, the difference is not that, that Jesus thought the disciples were more holy or more qualified or better in any way. In fact, honestly, if you read the, the stories, the, the disciples sometimes were 
less qualified and less righteous than the crowd. The difference wasn't that Jesus liked his disciples more and, and loved them more. If we, if we read the story, Jesus loved the crowd. Jesus performed miracles to the crowd. He blessed the crowd. He did all kinds of things. He loved the crowd. So what is the difference? Well, the crowd comes to Jesus for a variety of reasons, but it can all kind of be boiled down to one thing. They came to Jesus out of a need that they had. Maybe the need is they wanted to see, you know, what all the buzz was about. Or maybe they came to hear his teachings. Or maybe they came uh, to see him perform a miracle. Or maybe they came because they needed a miracle. And so the crowd was there asking the question, Jesus, what can you do for me? And that is not a bad question. I want to make it clear that being part of the crowd is not a bad thing. Coming to Jesus to ask, what can you do for me, is great. But a a disciple would ask that. They would ask Jesus to fill needs, but they also asked another question. They said, Jesus, what can I do for you? See, I think what separated the disciples from the crowd was the disciples said, Jesus, I am giving you my life. I am am following you, that you are the boss, you are on the throne. Disciple and discipline comes under the same uh, root word, and so disciples were like, I'm coming under your discipline. I'm coming under your discipline, Jesus. Here's my life, I give it to you. And this is important because this is what Jesus had come to do. He loved the crowd. He would gather crowds, but his main goal was to create disciples. He wanted to make disciples, and this is the job he gave us as the church. He said, go and make disciples of all nations. And I think there are so many implications to that that we could press out, but he, he didn't say, go and gather big crowds. Go and have big church services. He said, go and make disciples of all nations. And this, I think, is super, super significant. But here's really what I want to say about that. Jesus is speaking to not just people who are there to see him and see what he has to say. He is speaking to people who said, Jesus, I'm all in. I give my life to you. So primarily today, as we look at the text, I am going to be speaking to those people as well. If, you, if you're here and you say, I am a follower of Jesus, I, I have given him my life, I want you to hear that this message is for you. But if you're here today and you would say, I don't know if that's me. Maybe you would say, I don't, I'm not a follower of Jesus. I, I would love for you to hear what Jesus says, uh, this is what my followers should look like. Because I believe it's a lot different than what maybe we've experienced um, in our culture and in this world. And so let's jump in and see what he has to say. Starting in, in verse 13. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. 
A city built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and gives light to everyone in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So Jesus says, you guys are salt and light. He says, you are the, the, the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And what does that mean? What is he saying? Well, the first thing that, that jumped out at me and, and, and uh, I thought was extremely important is there is a communal element to what he's saying. That the analogy he uses uh, with salt and a, and a city on a hill are both examples of, of, of lots of things. And so let me, let, me, let me play that out for a second. I am not the salt of the earth, and I am not the light of the world, and you are not the salt of the earth and the light of the world, but we are. We are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Salt, just one grain of salt is nothing. Right? And the, 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 the analogy of a city on a hill, if there's just one light off in the distance, that's nothing. But this is something that together, as, as, as believers, that the way that we act together is, is, is something significant. That so many times, I know this has been true in my life, that my, you know, it's, it's my personal relationship with God and that I'm called to do it on my own. But so, I mean, Jesus calls us the body. He calls us all of these things that, that says we, we are called to do this together. We're not just lone wolves going into the world trying to be salt and light and trying to, to do all these things, that we, we are this together. And Jesus is asking us to embrace his family and that we represent him when we, when we are together. We're a better reflection of our God together. And so it's a communal thing. The second thing that I want to look at really fast is this is not a behavioral statement. It's not a behavioral statement. He doesn't say, make sure you take a bunch of salt and a bunch of light with you. He doesn't even say, uh, be salt and be light. What does he say? He says, you are salt. And you are light. See, this is not a behavioral statement. This is an identity statement. Jesus is saying that my disciples, the people who, who are followers of me, who have given their life to me, this is who you are. And he goes on to say, you know, salt that's not salty, there's not much use for it. And, and light that is, is not providing light, that's not useful either. He says, it's who you are. This is who you are. We are salt. It's part of our inheritance as believers to be salt and light. So the reason that's significant is because I don't believe these are commandments. And even, even the Beatitudes about like being a peacemaker, I don't think those are commandments. I think they are identity markers that says this is what it looks like when you are a disciple, when you're a follower of Jesus. And so because they're identity markers, I kind of like to look at them 
Less as you ought to do this and make sure you're doing this and stop doing this. And more as, as road signs that let us know we're on the right road. And so if we look at our life and they're not, um, you know, our lives aren't, uh, you know, we don't have these road signs. They aren't indicated by the things that we're going to be talking about. The solution is not that we try harder to be salt and light. And we say, I better, I better you know, be more meek and I better be more of a peacemaker. That, that won't get you anywhere. The solution, what we need to do is realize we're, we're on the wrong road. I'm on the wrong road. And, and the right road is, 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 is intimacy and dependency on Jesus and ultimately obedience to him. See, it's Jesus that transforms us. It's his good good will and his love that transforms us from the inside out. It's not us that do it. We don't will ourselves to be salt and light. He says, it's who you are when you're connected with me. And so I say that because this is, I, I feel like what I'm, what I'm gonna say today can be convicting. It convicted me. And I hope it convicts you, but I, do, I hope that you don't feel shame because of it, because that's not the voice of God. God's voice never sounds like shame. And so if you hear shame, that's on me and not on God. And so the, the solution is not, I gotta try harder. The solution is, oh, I want more of Jesus. Jesus, I need to get on the road that, that, that's, that's, that's built on you. So these are road signs. So what is salt and light? What does it mean to be salt and light? And to answer that, I think we need to start with what it's not. Because I think many of us may be familiar uh, with this text. We may have heard teachings on it. But, but I've heard a lot of bad teachings on this. I've heard some good ones as well. But I've heard a lot of bad teachings on this. And oftentimes, what I've heard it associated with is... Uh, with upholding the, the morality of the Bible. And, and, and things like salt preserves and light exposes. So salt, we need to preserve the teachings of the Bible and the, 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 the moral fabric of our society is crumbling and we need to hold it up and, and, and we need to be light. We need to shine on the darkness of the world and expose the, the brokenness and the sins in the world and that's what we're called to do as Christians. And I don't believe that that is what this is talking about. Let me say that I do believe that God has a standard for us to live by. I'm not saying that. I don't believe that God has uh, biblical principles that he's calling us to live in according to. And I don't, I'm not saying that he doesn't have a, 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 a level of morality and he's not calling us to be holy and righteous. I'm not saying that at all. But I don't believe that he's calling us to impose it on the rest of the world. I don't. Because, because first of all, I don't believe that Jesus did that. If I look at the, the, the life of Jesus, if I look at him as our example, that's not what he did. Jesus didn't get in arguments and fights with, 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 with non-believers. He didn't say, you guys on the outside, you need to get your act together before you come here. You know who he had conflict with? The people who did that. 
He had conflict with the, the, the Pharisees who said that, who said, listen, you guys need to get your act together. And the primary, I mean, the, the Pharisees ended up killing him because of the conflict they had. But the primary conflict that they had was Jesus was so frustrated uh, with them acting like their good deeds made them better than other people. And that their holiness made them uh, on some higher ground than anyone else. And, 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 and what, what happened is they imposed those beliefs, the beliefs in the Bible, on others. And Jesus constantly was saying, stop it. Stop doing that. Stop trying to keep people away from me who need me. Stop telling people that they need to live this way or stop living this way in order to come into relationship with me. Let me be the one who changes them. And when I was growing up, and even sometimes today I need to, I need to do this, but when I, I would always think of the Pharisees as like the evil Pharisees who were like the bad guys. And they were like, so, they're like, you know, really mean and bad. But I want, I want you to, I want to paint a picture for you of who the Pharisees really were. The Pharisees were devout followers of the one true God who wanted to withhold the truths in Scripture. And we're living in a culture where the, the traditions and teachings of the Bible and, and the ways of worship that the Bible talks about was being corrupted by a pagan society. And they said, we need to stand up for the truths in the Bible. And, and they saw things like, you know, things that were important, like, you know, sexual morality is important and, 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 and the way we worship and the freedom to worship and, and obeying the commandments in Scripture. We need to stand up for those truths and we need to make sure that they don't get, you know, pushed away. And what happened was they began to elevate those do's and do nots above the one who established them. And it began to push away everybody. It began to build barriers for people to come to God. And they would say, you know, this is what you need to do to be a you know, part of the club. And you can't do this. You can't do that, but to be part of the, the group, you got to do these things. And that's challenging. Because if we're being honest, wouldn't you say that, that we, we tend to do that? Look, I'm not saying that we never stand up for truth. I'm not saying that there's not biblical truth and standards to live by. I want to make that clear. What I'm saying is I, I just don't think that's, that you know, imposing it on the world is being salt and light. And In fact, Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and, and I would encourage you to underline this verse because I think it is so important for us as Christians in today's culture and today's time to to like have this ingrained in who we are. Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12, he says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside of the church? 
It's none of my business. That's not what we're called to do. It's not being salt and light. So what is salt and light? Let's start with salt. What is it? Salt in this culture was, 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 was two things. It was a preservative, salt preserved, and salt was an enhancer. Salt enhanced things. It made things tasty. So it preserved things. It, it, they didn't have refrigerators, obviously, so they put salt on meat and fish to help it last longer. And, and it also, just like us, it made, it made food taste better. So let's start with what it is we are called to preserve. If we are the salt of the earth, what is it that we're called to preserve? And here's a practical tip. When you're reading the Bible and there's something you're trying to figure out, like what does it mean, God, that we are salt? A good place to start, and this is a little tip. This is like uh, Bible reading 101. This is hermeneutics 101, that if there's a word that you're trying to figure out, what does this mean, God? What are you saying by this? Look to the rest of the Bible and see what else the Bible says about it. And so the Bible talks about salt. The Old Testament is full of stories about salt. And one thing that's a theme over and over about salt was that salt was a sign of the covenant between God and man. Actually, I didn't know that. Sign, uh, salt was a sign of the covenant between God and man. And these believers, these Jewish believers, these disciples who were Jewish, they would have known that. It would have, it would have clicked for them that this was a sign of the covenant. And one of the reasons they would have known that is because every time they went to the temple to give their offering, part of the offering that they would give was an offering of salt. They would give an offering of salt. And so the salt represented the covenant that God had made with humanity. And the covenant that Jesus came to establish and that was poured out in his blood that God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So being salt of the world, being, being salt of the world means we preserve that. We are to preserve that message. We are to make that message sacred in our lives. That no longer is God holding man's sins against them. That he is inviting all people no matter race or, or gender or culture, he's inviting all people to come to him. And that his grace is freely poured out to whoever call upon the name of the Lord. That's the covenant. The covenant that, that, that we are saved not by what we have done, but by what Jesus did on the cross. And so we are called to preserve that. It's not to you get your life together, you gotta be better. It's that he was the best. And he paid the price for us. And I love that it's it's more than just preserving the message of it, but but it's it's that we embody that. That we are that message. We are that message. Think about it. We are living examples of, of Jesus' grace. 
That, that we are sinners saved by the love of God. We're sinners saved to the grace of God, not by, for, by what we've done or by what we've not. We all sang that earlier. And it's the truth. That's who we are. We have no moral high ground on anyone else. So when we, when we act like we do, we're actually doing the opposite of preserving that. When we say we are broken people who God has called into relationship and God has restored into relationship with him. And, and, and a person who I know that really embodies this is my mom. She, it's just, she doesn't even have to try I mean, she probably does try, but it just it feels like it's just who she is. We, we'll go out to lunch about once a month just to catch up and talk about things, and, and we'll be sitting there at lunch, and I know what's going to happen every time we go out is that the, the waiter or waitress will come up, and my mom will say, like, hey, you know, we're going to pray before we eat, and uh, is there anything we can pray for you about? My mom's from Texas, so that's a really good impression, by the way, if you don't know my mom. Um, but she'll say, you know, we just believe God loves you and wants to have a relationship with you. Um, and it's not like this thing that's like, hey, I just want you to know that God is very disappointed with the sinful acts that you've been committing. No, it's this thing that God loves you so much. I think, listen, I think the world knows what the church is against. I think it's about time they start hearing what we're for. And my mom just embodies that. She says, oh, you know, God loves you. Can we pray for you? I think God wants to, to meet with you. And she just, every time, and I'm sitting there thinking like, hey, can I get my burger while you guys talk? And <laughs> but it's just who we are. We're salt. Another aspect is that salt, it enhances it makes things taste better, right? Have you ever got like a, a like you go, you've gone over to a friend's house or something, they like grilled a steak and they bring it out and it's like, looks really juicy and you're excited to eat it and you cut into it and you take a bite and it's like, there's no salt and it's boring. Salt makes things taste better. Or, or I know that the first time I ever cooked for my wife, uh, we, we went out, or I, she came over, and I, I wanted to make her this really delicious meal. And it was, like, beautiful. And I even got, like, edible flowers for it. It was going to be really romantic. And I over-salted the meal. <laughs> but salt's important. Salt needs to be, like, not the star. Like, when you, when you eat that steak, you don't want to say, mmm, that's some good salt. <laughs> you want to say, that's good steak. That's good steak. You don't want salt to be elevated above the food. Salt, but salt needs to be in and on and around the food to make it better. And I believe that's another picture of when Jesus would say we we're called to be in the world, but not of the world. We're supposed to be different than the world, but we're supposed to be in it and making it a better place. And I think, I, I think this is a spiritual principle that we're supposed to do this spiritually. And, but I also think this is just a really practical principle as well. I think we're called to make our communities more beautiful. I think we're called to be a, 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 a people that when we move into a neighborhood, people are thankful that we're there. 
that people are like, I like that person, they're kind. They help me with things. I think we're called that when a church is planted in a neighborhood, the neighborhood would say, thank you for this church. Thank you for the work that they do in our community. And again, it's real practical things too. I know Lara, when we, uh, when we go out places, she's constantly just telling people nice things about themselves and being an encourager. She's constantly, and it's, Sometimes deep things, and sometimes it's like, I like your boots, which for her is a deep thing. She loves fashion. <laughs> but like, she's just constantly saying, oh, you're so beautiful, or you're so kind, and, and that's being salt. That's helping make things better. And we have this, this opportunity as, as followers of Jesus to make the areas we live in, the people that we are, are planted in, to, to elevate them and enhance who they are. And one of my favorite things about being a pastor is I get to sit and have conversations with people where I say, you know, I think God made you for this. And, and I get to call things out in people like, oh, did you know that you're really good at this? And what, what if God made you for this reason? Food is better when it's salted but salt can't be the star. It needs to enhance the thing that it's, that it's seasoning. And I believe that we're called to do the same. So what about light? What about light? In this context, being a city on the hill, what was Jesus saying? I think this is a beautiful thing. A city on a hill was, was something that would have been seen and known as something that was for travelers. People who are, who are on the road traveling in a city on a hill would have been uh, two things. It would have provided direction. It would have been the thing that they look at saying, that's where we're going. That's like our, our North Star or our lighthouse or beacon or whatever you, know, you want to use there. But it also, it provided safety. That uh, uh, a city on a hill, uh, you didn't want to be traveling in the darkness because there were uh, robbers and, and predators and all kinds of things in the wilderness as you travel, but if the, the, sit, the light from the city would provide safety for you. And so I, I believe us as followers of Jesus are called to be those two things. We're called to provide direction. We are supposed to be the thing that people look at and say, that's, I wanna, I wanna be there, I wanna go there called to be a beacon. And you notice that the, the scripture actually said it will shine on our good deeds. It didn't say the things that we say. It says the way we act, the way we love. Do you know what Jesus said that, that his followers would be known for? He didn't say my followers will be known by all of the platitudes in the Bible that they have memorized. He says, my disciples will be known by the way that they love. And I believe those are the good deeds that God is talking about. The way we love one another. The way we show grace when, when, when someone messes up. The way we, 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 we extend mercy to one another. The way we help 
the, the, the people who are in need, how we care for the broken, how we, how we care for forgotten people. That would, that would draw people in. When I had walked away from the Lord in my early 20s, um, I've shared this story, um, but I, I've never shared this part, but it was the thing that drew me back was first I was drawn back into the church. I wasn't drawn back to Jesus first. The thing, I, I started going back to church because there was a church in my community that really loved people well. They cared for widows, practically. Real pra- they cared for uh, immigrants. They cared for orphans. They cared for the homeless in their community. And I said, oh, that's, that's appealing. And I was drawn to it. And it was in that context where I was reintroduced to Jesus. I believe that if we are living out the, what the Bible says, it will draw people in. Secondly, a city on a hill provided light and protection for the traveler. God says that he is the defender of the weak. And I believe we're, we're called to be about our father's business. That we would be known as ones who protected the weak, the vulnerable, the marginalized. Would the church be known as a place of safety and not a place of fear? Oftentimes as a pastor, I'll have conversations with people and they'll find out I'm a pastor and I'll, they'll, they'll make a joke, some form of this joke where they'll say, oh man, if I ever came to your church, I'd be struck by lightning or, or something like that. Or, and, and I just want to say that they didn't hear that from God. Somewhere down the line, I think they heard it from the church. And that is a shame. That the church would be a place where people would say, this would be a safe place for me to be. Do you know that these rooms, this room that we're in, we call it the the gym or the auditorium. But do you know, um, in church tradition, this would have been the sanctuary. And you know, if you thought why it was called the sanctuary... A sanctuary is a place of safety. And that the the, the place where God's presence was and the people of God coming together is to be known and should be known as a place of safety for people. A place of safety for, for people who are questioning. A place of safety for those who are dealing with mental illness. A place of safety for someone maybe who, who's a different religion or a, a place of safety for someone who is living and it would feel like I am safe in this environment. But also it would be a place that would provide safety for those who can't provide safety for themselves. I was, I was just uh, at a Vineyard National Conference and I was talking to a pastor uh, who is a pastor down in South Florida and he was saying that when the last uh, um, hurricane came, that before FEMA got there, before any nonprofit got there, it was the vineyard and local churches who were in the community helping. 
care for the community. And I was proud. I was like, that's what it's about. And I was, I was listening to a podcast this past couple weeks, and I heard this story about, uh, it, was, it was not a Christian podcast at all, but they were talking about how, talking about immigration and, and refugees and the whole crisis happening, and they are saying it's the Lutheran church that is known worldwide for the way it cares for refugees. And it was, it was actually a Muslim woman talking, and she was saying, we should learn from the Lutheran church. And it was beautiful. I was like, oh man, that makes me proud. The church should, should be known for the way it cares for immigrants. The church should be known for the way it cares for people who are in jail. The church should be known for the way it cares for the unborn who can't defend themselves. The church should be known for the way it cares for the marginalized of society, for the ones facing racism, for the ones who are being pushed down, pushed aside, that it would be known for a place of safety and that we would be defenders of those And here's what's really important about being light is that the reason that you and I are the light of the world is not because we are more righteous or we do these things. It's not because we're smarter. It's not because of anything like that. It's because when you are a disciple of Jesus, Jesus is the light of the world and he lives in us. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And as a disciple, as a follower of Jesus, we have that light living inside of us. And so I say that, so again, to reinforce the idea, when we hear this message, when, you, when we talk about these things, again, the, 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 the tendency is for us to say, I gotta try harder, I gotta be more, I gotta do more. And, and, and I, I wanna just say, respectfully, let's try to avoid that. And what we need to do is connect with our Jesus. Connect with the light of the world and let him shine through us. And I think the more we connect with him, the more inspired we will be to do those things. And it won't be based on our own efforts. It will be based on what he does because I feel like I, I get, he is the light of the world. He is the hope of salvation. He is our righteousness. And so when we look at our lives and maybe we look and we're here and you think, wow, my life isn't you know, defined by those road markers. And we say, I'm on the wrong road. I'm on the wrong road. And we connect ourselves to Jesus. So let me ask you, hearing those descriptions of salt and light, what, what Jesus says, this is what my disciples will look like. Let me ask you, how do you think we're doing? It's a complicated question because it's not an easy answer, I think. Yeah, in, in, in one sense, I think we're doing great. 
We hear the stories like I shared and, and so many stories of, of things that will never be on the news, it will never be reported by a newspaper, just of, of Christians who are, who are having food pantries and, and being kind to their neighbors and all these kinds of things that just, they're not the, the sexy story. And so in, in one sense, I think we are doing really well, but in uh, another sense, I think we're not doing so well. I think we have some room to grow. And, and one of the things I think that it's an issue is I think we have confused, going back to the beginning, the disciple and the crowd. And we, as disciples, are supposed to represent Jesus. And I think we've, we've allowed the crowd to represent Jesus. And, and it's time for us to, to connect ourselves to Jesus and let him shine through us. And so what do we do? We don't try to be saltier or lightier. We say, Jesus, I am yours. Have your way in my life. Would you, would you break my heart for what breaks yours? Would you fill me with your compassion? And so then I can begin to be the salt and light to the world. Because it's, it's, it's not obedience first that leads to intimacy with him. It's intimacy with Jesus that leads us to dependency on him, which leads to obedience to him. Obedience for obedience sake is just gonna break us, wear us down, and ultimately it won't be effective. But when we're connected to the vine, oh, the, the, the amount of kingdom work that we could do is just staggering. So why don't we stand When we end our, our services, one of the things we like to do is, actually two things we like to do is, one, just wait on the Holy Spirit. We've just spent about 45 minutes of, of you know, us talking and singing, and we just want to take a few minutes where we say, would you, would you have anything to say to us? We just quiet ourselves. Because we believe here at the Vineyard, we believe that God is still speaking. And the other thing that we like to do is we like to respond. And so when he speaks, we want to respond. We want to be a disciple that says, I'm not just here for you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what you call me to. And so we respond. So let's just, let's just silence ourselves for a few minutes and just wait on the Lord. Just come, Holy Spirit.